Hey guys, welcome to Leadership. I'm your host, Brendan Carr. In this episode, we are talking to Sebastian Younger, author of Tribe, which is featured in the Navy Reading Program. And in this episode, Sebastian tells us how leaders can build their own tribe, how that tribe can be built on principles of acceptance rather than demonizing others, and how nicknames signify inclusion in a group. All that and more. Let's go to the interview. So Sebastian, I watched Restrepo, and how does a guy like you end up in a scary place like that doing, doing that kind of work? Uh, well, I, I, that was at the end of a long career of war reporting that, that started uh, in the early 90s during the siege of Sarajevo uh, in the Bosnian Civil War. Um, I was, at the time, I was, you know, I'd grown up in a sort of affluent suburb. I'd always lived a very safe life. My father was a two-time war refugee from the Civil War in Spain and then when the Germans uh, took over France. And um, I was curious about war, the way many young men, I think, often are. And, and I wanted a, um, a way out of the life that I was living. I was a climber for tree companies. I was an arborist. I took trees down for a living you know, on a rope with a chainsaw. Um, and, and I wanted to be a writer, and I, but I wasn't really going anywhere. I thought if I just if I go to Bosnia, I'll learn how to be a war reporter. That will jumpstart my career. And, and off I went. And, and I covered a lot of civil wars. Um, I was in Afghanistan in uh, 1996 to cover the civil war there. <laughs> I kept going back to Afghanistan. Eventually, 9-11 happened. The U.S. got there, and I resumed covering that country from the perspective of American soldiers. Um, and I was in Sierra Leone and Liberia and you know, all these other war-torn places that Americans weren't so concerned about. Um, going out to Restrepo to cover American forces there, um, a lot of ways, was not something I ever anticipated doing. I grew up during Vietnam um, you know, in a very liberal family, a very liberal environment. The Vietnam War was completely discredited by the adults that I knew. Um, and I, 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 early on, didn't agree with my country's wars and didn't think I'd want to cover them. And, and, you know, 9-11 changed a lot of the calculus for a lot of people about war and about politics. And for me, that was certainly, you know, that certainly happened with me as well. And, uh, uh, but I grew up, I, you know, I grew up, I never thought we, America would be in a protracted ground war again. I thought they would never, America would never make that mistake twice. And, um, so as a journalist, I never thought that would happen. But when it happened, when we wound up and I'm sort of stuck in Afghanistan, um, and that was the war that I was for. But we made a lot of bad mistakes there that got us sort of stuck there. And, and when that happened, I thought, I really need to know what it's like to be with American soldiers in combat. I was very curious about it. And so I got an embed, you know, uh, I arranged for an embed and wound up with the 173 Airborne. Wow. Yeah, that's that's quite a quite a path to get out there to to a place like Restrepo. And what, what were the kind of things that you were seeing out there with those guys, for those who haven't seen the film? Well, I, I mean, they were... A, small minority in the U.S. military in that they were in a lot of combat um, on foot, uh, combat almost every day. Most of it was on foot in a remote outpost. Um, this outpost was on a ridge. It was a one-hour one walk to the nearest um, other nearest American base of so the company headquarters. They had no internet, no phone connection to the U.S. Um, they had no electricity for the first few months. They had no television. They had no nothing. They did. I mean, they were literally sleeping in the dirt with their weapons behind sandbags that they filled and themselves with a pick and shovel. And they were fighting almost every day. Um, so that you know that might be the image of what war is like, but it's not the 
reality for most of the U.S. military, but for these guys it was, and it felt very old. It felt, in fact, quite ancient. I mean, it felt like this could be World War II, World War One, the American Civil War. I mean, it felt in in, in what the group was. You know, it was twenty guys, twenty four guys out there, not much. And what in the dynamics between them felt like I was watching um, a kind of primordial group of men struggle against a deadly enemy, and that that I could have been watching this a thousand years ago would be basically the same thing. Yeah. And and the the experience that you had out there and the things that you saw and that cohesion of that group of men, you compare in your book to another idea that was uh, taught to you as, as a young man. Could you explain that that game of ideas that you work with there? Yeah. So I, when I was young, I had a, um, a sort of mentor, uncle figure named Ellis Settle. He was half um, Apache, half Lakota Sioux. He was born literally on a wagon. 1929, the start of the Depression, um, and grew up out west, and he was incredibly well-educated. He, he read everything. He was very, very smart. read everything he could get his hands on. Um, and I remember him telling me when I was 20 or so um, that all throughout the history of the U.S., along the frontier, and this is how he put it, he said, white people were always running off to join the Indians, but the Indians never ran off to join the white people. That the movement, that, that when, when people had a choice, they went towards the tribal, not towards the civilized. And we have a nice phrase for that, to go native. We don't have the equivalent phrase to go civilized because no one wants to do it. And, I, you know, it stuck in my mind, and I, and I sort of wondered if it was true. I liked the idea of it. It sounded right. It felt, felt right. I sort of wanted it to be right, but I didn't know. And um, many years later, after the guys that I was with at Restrepo came back to Italy where they're based and were preparing to return eventually to the U.S., um, I was surprised by how many of them admitted to me that they didn't want to go back to the U.S. They wanted to go back to Restrepo. And it made me think of what my Uncle Ellis had said. And he, he added that even people who were kidnapped by the Indians on raids along the frontier and adopted into these tribes when given the chance to be repatriated um, to families that they knew. I mean, these people might have been kidnapped as teenagers. To be repatriated to their original families, original towns, many of them, most of them did not want to go. They wanted to remain with their adopted tribe. And that made me think of the soldiers who didn't want to go back to the U.S. They wanted to go back out to Restrepo. It made me, it made me think of what I was witnessing with American soldiers. And it, it, it made me ask the question, um, what is it about modern America? Uh, what is it about modern society? What is it about Western society that's so demoralizing and unappealing? Considering all the material advantages that it has, it's sort of extraordinary that people don't want to return to it. And yeah. that was the sort of genesis of, of my work on tribe. Yeah, what do, you, what do you think it is about this this idea, this going native, this tribal life that is so appealing? Because it would seem, you know, looking at it the other way, you'd think, well, in, in modern life, people have all these luxuries, plenty of things, plenty to eat, but, but that's not as appealing. What's the difference? Well, it seems that Material, um, material wealth does not um, necessarily confer happiness in the sense of meaning. Um, as you, we're, we're a social species, we're social primates. Um, we get our most profound sense of meaning by contributing to the welfare of the group. And we get our ultimate physical and, by extension, emotional safety from being part of a group. And one way, perhaps the only way to be part of a group is to 
be a contributor to it. So there's this two-way street. Like, I do not survive alone in nature. I will die. I need to be part of a group. The way to be part of a group is to contribute to it. So because evolution makes things that are necessary for our survival feel good, um, what what we have, what what we experience when you contribute to a group is that it feels very, very good. They've done studies where, you know, someone will do something for another person and there's a, there's a, the, the rise in oxytocin and other sort of dopamine and other feel-good chemicals um, is far higher in the person who gives than the person who receives. That's evolution's way of making sure that we're contributors. Um, and because presumably without that, we wouldn't survive. So I think what you have in situations like the soldiers I was with and the um, situations that my uncle Ellis told me about with captives and people along the frontier, um, and then also other situations I studied, like the Blitz in London and other disasters where people had to group together to survive. What you have is people responding very positively to a circumstance where they're in close proximity with other people, and when their individual identity is partly subsumed by the by the requirements of the group. And when you do that, you think that you that people would get dragged kicking and screaming uh, into a situation where they kind of lose their identity a little bit, lose their full autonomy. In fact, it's the opposite. It's like people people are dying to be of service. Um, and uh, uh, in in the Blitz in London, for example, what they found was that psychological health improved. And think about that. They were getting bombed every night yeah. uh, by the German Air Force. They lost 30,000 civilians. But admissions to psych wards went down during the Blitz, uh, is one official, one British official. <laughs> used, uh, he said, you know, it's amazing that, that we have what he called the chronic neurotics of peacetime driving ambulances. People like to be needed. They like to be used. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. And and you cited in your book, too, that uh, that after 9-11, cases of PTSD and Vietnam vets seemed to subside, too, that there were there were positive outcomes in people who, who felt needed and felt like part of a group, too, in those situations. Yeah, the, um, the suicide rate went down in New York City uh, after 9-11. And... Um, uh, the, the violent crime rate went down. Uh, Vietnam vets reported a um, lowering of their PTSD symptoms. Um, so there was a general improvement, and then that that has been replicated. I mean, that, that that effect has been has been noted in many many circumstances around the world. Um, uh, even in Europe in the 1800s, um, it was it was observed that the suicide rate would go down at uh, in, in countries that were at war. When, they, when countries entered a state of war, the suicide, the national suicide rate would go down. Wow, wow! And with these with these ideas with suicide, it's it's something that we're very aware of in the military. How how is that how is that relationship between this this being needed and, and suicide? How how does that play out? Well, it's tricky because there's no uh, virtually no statistical relationship between combat and suicide. Mm -hmm. um, suicide is often a product of, of being disconnected from a group. I mean, that's, that's, that's what makes people vulnerable uh, to depression and suicide. Is, it's one of the things, is, is feeling not needed and not useful and, and not of service. So when people are fired, when they retire, I mean, after the, the Wall Street crash of 2008, the unemployment rate doubled. And as a result, in the, the Journal of a journal, I'm trying to remember the name, it was a journal that's focused on epidemiology, 
can't remember the exact name of it. What they found was that there were an additional 5,000 suicides in the United States that were a direct result of the uh, unemployment rate doubling because of the financial crisis, you know, which is you know, within the ballpark of the casualties that we've sustained in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, it's, a, you know, it's a roughly the same number of, of tragedies of people of death. Um, and, and, but they were from, from suicide. So, so with soldiers, um, they, what they found is that you can be on a lot of combat or a very little bit of combat. It, it doesn't affect the suicide rate very much. And other things are actually more, um, more relevant to whether someone will take their own life. Well, it, it is, it is a really big relationship now that you put it like that about feeling like you're part of the group and then when you leave that situation, how you are more susceptible to things. I can think even in my own career on a very small scale, when I train my replacement in a job and then I'm moving on to another job in the Navy, I, I don't feel as needed and I find that I'm, I'm also a little bit down in that experience yeah. compared to how I felt when I was needed and everybody's looking to me and I'm part of the team and more active in the group. Definitely happens. Yeah, and I, you know, absolutely. And, and it's um, if you think about our human origins, the anthropologist will tell you that we evolved for hundreds of thousands of years, living mostly in groups of 30, 40, 50 people. You know, clearly every individual was needed, and that's also what they got their security and their safety from, from being needed. And so if you're not needed, you're in danger. I mean, as a basic human terms, if you don't feel needed by other people, you're in danger. Mm -hmm. And in a very real in evolutionary terms, in a very real sense, you're in danger. And um, so, so most of the the suicide rate among uh, U.S. veterans right now is um, Vietnam era veterans. So it's not recent um, recent veterans. Most of the uh, you know the awful number we've all heard, 22 a day. There's some debate about the accuracy of that. But regardless, the mo the, the bulk of that tragic number is Vietnam era veterans uh, and I'm 56 men my age and above um, and so it's possible that rather than being a product of trauma that they experienced in Vietnam um, it might be it might reflect failing health failing marriages people um, retiring uh, uh, aging out of their jobs uh, it might be a combination of all those things and not simply you know a 50-year um, you know, a, a, a reaction to Vietnam, you know, 50 years later, which, I mean, psychologists will tell you that the, the, the closer in time, some, the closer in time a suicide happens to a trauma, traumatic event, the more likely they are to be related. And if you wait, you know, 50 years and then take your own life, there are very, very probably other factors involved that were, that were, were not necessarily part of the original trauma that, you know, just life happens and it's hard on everybody. Um, so that's the, that's the unfortunately complicated answer about suicide. Okay. So with, with veterans, after a long time out, there's so many other variables in life that come into play that, uh, that could be a, a big cause in something like a suicide, I see. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, your wife dies of cancer and you put a bullet in your forehead the next day, there's a very, you know, a, a psychologist mm -hmm. will say there's a very strong connection and the, the one the one thing very possibly led to the other thing. If you put a bullet in your forehead 40 years after your wife dies, they're probably not that connected. And that's one of the things they're saying about um, suicide in Vietnam vets is, you know, take a look at the fact that they're they're at an age, in an age group where their health is starting to fail, where yeah. their marriages, you know, wives, spouses are dying. 
they're they're losing their jobs. You know, they're aging out of their job. You know, like there's a lot of other things that are really hard on people. Combat they that they were in 50 years ago, and you know, and and most soldiers were not in combat. You know, something like 10% are in combat. The rest of the military really doesn't get fired at very much, and uh, so you have to you know look at that that also. Yeah. So for those of us who who can who can stay safe and and then we we lose a friend. Would you have suggestions with this idea of the tribe for how to how to grieve, how to move on through that as a team? Well, that's the you know that's the that's the trick. Uh, we don't do things as groups anymore. I and mean, if you mm. sustain a loss in combat, you were with the platoon that that person was part of for the rest of the deployment, and everything is easier in a group. Uh, mm. I mean, psychological stress is easier to handle in a group. Um, it's way easier to be scared in a group than scared by yourself, for example. Um, and uh, so the problem for soldiers, I think, is that they sustain their trauma. I mean, the ones who are in combat sustain their trauma while in a group, and that sort of makes human sense. And then they come home, and maybe they lose people that they're really close to, other, other soldiers. And then they, and grief doesn't go away very quickly, right? I mean, it's not like... Three weeks, three weeks later, you're pretty much recovered. I mean, grief comes and goes in waves, and it's not linear, unfortunately. And so, you know, what might happen is that the group sort of recovers, then everyone goes home, and now they're by themselves. You know, they're living you know, in a single-family home in the great American suburb or by themselves in the city or wherever it may be. They're not in that close unit anymore, and certainly not in a close unit that experienced anything together. And now they're, now they're trying to deal with their grief by themselves. And um, that is enormously hard. And so, I, I mean, the best thing would be to get together with other people who are also grieving that person. I mean, that makes the most human sense. But when the platoon you're in is um, has been scattered to the four winds, you know, it's it's not realistic. And that's the I don't know what the answer is, but that's the problem of modern society is that it requires, for the most part, that people recover from trauma. And, and struggle with life um, alone or within the context of their family and not community. And that's the killer. Uh, mm. And I know, uh, you know, I've talked to, um, I've talked to people, you know, one woman who, who survived cancer, she was on a cancer ward for a long time and she survived, she was one of the lucky ones, she survived cancer. And she said that, um, that she looked at me really sadly and said, she said, you know, but now I miss being sick because she wanted to be back mm. in the community of the cancer ward. Um, so likewise, you know, with grief, I mean, if you could get back into that community, you'd feel you'd, you'd be doing okay, but you, there's no, there's no way to get back to that. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Another, another example of those, those harsh circumstances that you talk about that, that bring people together, even, even something like an illness. Yeah. Now that's right. for, for you personally, you, you got to know some of these guys and you, and you worked with your, your co-director, Tim Hetherington and, and obviously, uh, Tim is no longer with us. And I wonder how, how did you. How did you work through that? Do you have suggestions from your own experience? Yeah, I mean, Tim was that, that was a, a tough one because we were supposed to be on, on assignment together uh, to go to Libya to cover the civil war. Mm -hmm. I'd been in combat with him, obviously, so I felt a lot of responsibility for him, for him and vice versa. And you know, if he had died in a car accident in New Jersey, I, I would I would have grieved, but I wouldn't have felt uh, responsible. Mm -hmm. Uh, and had I never, you know, had I never been in combat with him, and we, he and he and I just directed the film together, 
I also, I'm not sure I would have felt responsible, but we were in combat together, and then he went off and died in combat, and I should have been there. I should have been there to protect him. I should have been there to save his life. I should have, it should have been me, not him. I mean, a lot of things happened in my head that didn't, that didn't make sense, but I, I, but I felt that way. And I felt that way kind of catastrophically. I mean, it, you know, I really just took over, it took over my thinking. Um, and I got really, there are other issues going on in my life as well, but I, but I, um, I got really, really depressed. And basically the, the recovery that I was embarked upon from, I mean, the Korangal Valley where I was at Gopi Restrepo, um, most of my memories of that place are, are very, very good. I had a very good time out there. Um, but there, but it was, it also changed me a lot and it was quite dramatic in other ways. And I was recovering, you know, I was, you no, know, it had been a couple of years and I was like well on my way toward moving out beyond that and, and putting myself back together. And then Tim hit and it sort of plunged me back down into all that sort of trauma stuff. And it really wrecked me for a while. And I, you know, one of the casualties of that was my marriage. I mean, my marriage ended in part because of the turmoil in my head around all this. And, um, I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure I would say that I, I handled it that successfully, frankly. I mean, you know, he, he still comes sort of lurching out of my dreams <laughs> or yeah. turns a corner when I least expect him to. And there he is. And I, you know, I can get uh, super emotional and I, you know, I wouldn't say it's a resolved thing. And I think it probably never will be. Wow. Wow. Okay. Sebastian, uh, your, your book, you have a story about your experience with getting your draft card. Could you tell us that story? Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so I was born in 1962, and throughout the Vietnam War, obviously, there was the draft, and uh, which I think was sort of the norm in, in this country. Um, and, I, you know, I grew up in a very liberal environment, and so for me, the draft was associated not with World War II or whatever, the Civil War, all these, you know, wars that arguably needed to be fought. The draft for me was associated with Vietnam, and it what felt like a huge plunder uh, and a huge waste of lives. And... Um, so at 18, and then they got rid of the draft, right? So at 18, I got my selective service card in the mail, which I never even heard of the selective service, right? And I looked at this thing and, and it said, the American government wants to know where you live. Are you an 18 year old male? This didn't go to my sister. This went to me. Are you an 18 year old male? We want to know where you live in case we need you for the, for the army, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I was like, what is this? What, <laughs> are you kidding? I couldn't believe it, right? And I showed it to my father, who had grown up in Europe, in Spain and France, and um, had come to this country during the war. And I said, I'm not signing this. Like, this is ridiculous. And he said, no, you're definitely signing that. And I was shocked because he was a real pacifist. I mean, an ardent, ardent pacifist. I think anyone who um, was affected, we experienced World War II, was going to be a pretty good pacifist. And, uh, and he, um, he said, look, there's thousands and thousands of young American men your age, uh, buried in France, where he grew up, um, and, and they helped save the world from fascism. And he said, you know, you, you're very lucky to live in America, and you don't owe your country nothing. You owe your country something, and you might owe it your life. Hopefully not, but you don't know yet. And the next war that comes along might be a stupid one, in which case it's your moral duty to protest it. And to even go to prison protesting it, if that's required. But it might be a war that needs to be fought, like World War II, in which case it's your duty to, to fight it. 
and you don't know which it's going to be. So you are signing that and you're sending it in. And when he put it that way, it made me incredibly proud. Like, uh, like for the first time at age 18, for the first time in my life, I was part of something way bigger and greater than myself. And, and, um, it made me enormously proud to sign it and send my name in and be willing to serve if, if it was a, a righteous cause. Yeah. Yeah. The wisdom of a dad sometimes it can, it sounds like he really flipped that situation around. And it's interesting to hear you say this about the draft card because I've, I've also heard you speak, I think it was on Joe Rogan's podcast about ideas that you have about uh, a mandatory national service as, as an idea to, to unify the country. Could you, could you share more about that? Yeah, I mean, people often conflate the draft and national service, and they're different things. I mean, I mean, the, a wartime draft is the purpose of it is to put rifles in people's arms and send them off to war, which I think is sometimes that has been necessary in our past. Um, national service is a different matter, and it, you know, basically, it falls from what my father said about you don't owe your country nothing. Well, how do you serve your country if there's no war? I mean, surely there's a way to serve your country without a rifle, without killing people, and and uh, uh, the, the question came up with Joe Rogan around the issue of the, divi the partisan divisions in America and how do we heal them, what do we do? And one of, one of the ideas that people talk about is mandatory national service, and it would do two things. I mean, first of all, psychologists know that the more you sacrifice for something, the more you value it. One of the problems in America right now is we're such a safe and affluent country that it doesn't require any sacrifice from anybody. Um, and, and, there, and, and there's a loss in value there, uh, precisely because no one's putting in anything except voluntarily. And the ones who do voluntarily value the country more than the people who don't. I mean, that's, the, that's one of the amazing things about serving your country in the military, is that you, you, you get your, what you get for that is your country, is a real sense of your country. And I don't, you know, I don't have that because I never served. And I think that's a real pity. But the other, the other thing that national service would do is put all everything that America is like black, white, rich, poor, transgender, straight, like whatever. I mean, Republicans, Democrats, communists, whatever. The whole weird show that this country is. He puts them all in a big pot. Says on some level, you people are all the same, and we're going to treat you the same. And it stirs them up, and they have to get to know each other. And I think that would be an enormously healthy thing for this country. And I think there are partisan voices on both sides, both conservative and liberal that would not want national service for precisely that reason that they do not want fraternizing between the camps mm. because they want a partisan divide and that that to me is totally abhorrent and I, and, and I think national service would um, change that dynamic in a really important way. So bring, bring the whole weird show together as you said which is that's what happens in the military we, we bring the whole weird show everybody comes together and and you've got to work together and uh, and make it happen it's and it's been for me, coming from rural Maine, you know, being exposed to mostly people who were very similar to me, it's been it's been a great experience to have that that kind of eye-opening mixing up of people. Sebastian, I've got a question from one of your fans who read the book. His name is William Terry. He's at Port Wayne, California, and he asks, "How do you steer people to create healthier tribes that encourage self-knowledge and acceptance rather than demonizing others?" Well, okay, so that's the, that, there, there's this other very negative connotation of tribe, which is the sort of uh, vicious animosity towards other groups. And 
what I would what I would say is that in America right now we have sort of the worst the worst of both. We have a a, a distinct lack of community at the sort of local level. Uh, we have very uh, you know we have neighborhoods, and towns, suburbs that where people are not connected to their even their neighbors. I mean even people living right next to them. Um, so you you lose the community. So tribe is a is another word for community. So you, you lose the communal aspect of life in America. But at the macro end, at the national end, you have um, political groups and ethnic groups in this country demonizing other groups. So you and, and tribalizing. So you have very little community at the local level, and you have an over over identification with a partisan group at the macro level. And so what I would say is that, first of all, we have to sort of heal our communities. Um, uh, I think the way the American suburb is set up is just totally inhuman and really toxic for people psychologically. But at the, at the, at the other end, um, we have to make it a, um, proactively make it a positive virtue to think and talk about this country in, in unified terms. That doesn't mean we're in agreement with each other. I mean, there's a very solid genetic basis for conservative and liberal thought. I mean, about 50% of our political, about 50% of everyone's political viewpoint is determined by genetics, by, by they inherited their conservatism or their liberalism, about 50%, right? So, so those two ways of thinking are not going away. They will, they will argue until the end of time. That's no problem. But what we cannot allow is for politicians and media leaders and powerful people actually single out groups of other Americans and demonize them as if they're enemies of the country that they belong to. And when people do that, I think they need to be called out by their own political party. I mean, you can, you can, you can establish that as a norm. I mean, when Donald Trump was calling Barack Obama, uh, when he was saying that he was not a citizen, you know, he's within his rights to say that there's free speech in this country. Um, but the GOP didn't have to accept that. The GOP could have said, you know what, that's bullshit. Like, I, the, the, our president is a citizen. Let's move on. But, and, they, and they didn't. And that's where this acceptance of partisan rhetoric has taken root. And, it, and we're too powerful for any other country to destroy us. No one's going to take out, down the United States. We're the biggest kid on the block. But we can easily take ourselves down. And we, we ourselves can destroy our democracy through words. And, and so that tribalism... I, you know, it's not a pretty thing when it turns nation against nation, but at least the nations themselves are whole. What's really dangerous, I think, for a country as powerful as the United States is to watch that tribalism fracture the country from within, and then nobody knows what's going to happen. And um, so I, I think what you have to do, and I think national service would help, and I think a, um, a congressional committee uh, established to examine and critique partisan rhetoric by powerful people and politicians, um, I, you know, I think what you have to do is like address, address that very, very vigorously because it's way more of a national security threat than you know, ISIS or whatever we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and another guest that we had on the show, his name's Peter Zahn, he's a, he's a geopolitical strategy guy, and he said something very similar about how the U.S. is so strong by itself that probably the biggest threat to us would be something damaging on the inside. So, so, so important to be aware of that and so important to, to think about it and how we speak about each other. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Mm -hmm. Sebastian, we've, we've talked before about how you use a flip phone 
Why, why is that? I, you know, I just never uh, downgraded to a smartphone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, it doesn't look appealing to be accountable to your email all day long at every moment. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't like being told where I am in the world and how to get to where I'm going. I like being able to figure that out. Like, I, don't, I, I mean, just the, the, all the things that a flip phone, that, that a smartphone does, like, I don't want them in my life. I mean, it's good. You know, I'm a father and I'm married and I have friends and it's good to be able to get a phone call or even text. But, I, you know, like, I don't, I don't want to carry the sum total of human knowledge in my front pocket all the time and to be reachable through multiple platforms continually all day long. It's a form of insanity. And I, you know, it makes me think that, you know, there's a sort of master-slave relationship going on and we're actually, you know, it's the master. Like, we're not. We think we are, but we're not. It dings, we jump. Like, it's pretty clear to me who's in control of who. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you, you talk about these things that are that are good for people, this idea of a tribe and being connected, and, and yet we so much gravitate to the things that you're, you're pointing out here. A, a kind of cookie cutter life in the suburbs, having the latest technology. Why do you think that's so appealing, even if it seems to run counter to what's best for, for human beings? Well, I mean, keep in mind that all of our wiring is for small groups. So if you are exceedingly social in a, in a, in a context where there's a limited number of people and a limited number of interactions, that's clearly adaptive. And, mm. um, or, or we wouldn't be that way. Um, it's adaptive to have a, 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 a taste for sugar and for fat. It's adaptive because we evolved in a world where there wasn't much sugar and wasn't much fat, so we needed to eat it whenever we had the chance, which wasn't that often. Um, but now we live in a world where sugar and fat are cheap. You can eat as much as you want, so everyone's obese. And, you know, the same thing with social media. I mean, that, that sort of like urgent sort of burning feeling of oh what did someone say about my post and what did you know like how are people responding to all of those are like very important human reactions i mean very important reactions to have about other people but evolution didn't count on the internet to come you know coming along where that could happen an infinity of times with an infinity of people every second of the day like i mean we're wired to respond positively to that but but not in a situation where we can do that all the time at the expense of the people who are actually standing near us. I mean, that's the irony of social media is that it actually takes people out of social situations yeah. and puts them into a weird cyber hole by themselves. They think they're connected, but they're not. They're actually interacting with pixels on the screen. Meanwhile, their friends and family around them have disappeared in their mind. And, and, and I, I really... Um, you know, I don't call it social media. I call it anti-social media. I think that's what it is. And, you know, um, correlation and causation aren't the same thing, but I think the fact that the suicide and depression rates are uh, have been skyrocketing among teenagers um, since, I think, 2006, right when social media and Facebook sort of hit the scene, you know, I don't, I, you know, I can't prove that one caused the other, but I, I think it's pretty suspicious that they are coinciding. Yeah. To, to an idea of, of a more organic connection between people, I've, I've grown up in the Navy in, in aviation culture. And so we have call signs, everybody's got a nickname. What, what is it about nicknames that suggests bonding in a group? Well, I mean, a nickname is something that the, the group knows about you that no one else does. So if someone calls you by your nickname, even if you don't know them that well, you know that they're in the group. Hmm. It's a 
signifier of group inclusion. Um, certain insignia on the, on the, on the shoulder, um, with certain ways of speaking. I mean, there are, there are things that signify like, oh, okay, I don't know you, but you, you know, you, you know my nickname and you got that patch on your shoulder or that feather in your, in your hair or whatever it is. So I know that you and I share the same values. We're going to share a lot of the same friends. Uh, and, and I don't, and I don't have to worry about you. Like we're on the same side. And so all that stuff's super important. And, it's really interesting. I, I have a friend, a psychologist, who's sort of studying this. Groups of women do not give each other nicknames. Um, groups of men do, and women in groups of men also get nicknames. But mm. women by themselves don't seem to. And they also, um, there's a whole kind of humor that happens in male groups that doesn't really happen in female groups. So part of this sort of grouping behavior is sort of gender-based. And one, one way that women can successfully integrate into male groups as is uh, happening in combat, for example, is to adopt the, the sort of male group norms of a nickname of the sort of insulting, this sort of like intensely insulting humor, which would seem like an unfriendly act, but actually <laughs> done well, it's, it's a form of bonding. And yeah, it's like, I think really uh, surprising to women, like that what those, what those norms are, but, but they've been part of male group behavior for a very long time. Oh, that is funny. So, so if a if a, a young lady is is integrating into a unit and everybody's getting call signs, it's it's best if she wants to really be part of the group to to take on a call sign as well. That's what you're saying. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I you know I don't know how the navy works, but I'm just saying that mm -hmm. what the way human be behavior works is that if you are given a nickname or a call sign or what have you, um, it means the group has has accepted you and you've accepted the group. Okay. And so if you if you step back from that. That doesn't mean that you can't function in the group, but on some mm -hmm. unconscious level, you're saying, "I'm not quite like you guys," yeah. you know. And 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 though you know though that inclusion becomes even more important with a woman trying to integrate into a male group because there's a very obvious difference there. So it becomes even more important that that everyone get on the same page about, "No, you are one of us." Like it doesn't matter what sex you are; like you are one of us. You get a nickname, blah blah blah. And and by the way, you look like shit in the morning. You know, I mean that. <laughs> <laughs> that that kind of insult, you know, and I think, I mean, I don't know what it's like to be a woman in a in a platoon, in a marine platoon in Afghanistan or whatever, but I, but I imagine that kind of insulting behavior is probably quite bracing for women when they first confront it, until they realize, oh no no, this is how guys say I like you, you know, this is, mm. I mean to each other, you know, like yeah. this is what they, this is how they communicate. No, we're good, we're on the same team, uh, because we can insult each other and we don't take it personally, and it's a very interesting poorly understood aspect of male behavior that I think, I'm, I, I mean, I'm just guessing, but I think it probably is confusing to women for a little while until they figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you're saying it's something that can be taken advantage of if you want to indicate your, your belonging. That's the idea. Oh, ab ab yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and to that idea of, of weird male behavior, you have a story about, about male aggression and a Viking hat. Could, could you share that story? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, right. I mean, it's sort of like the, you take groups of men, if you get them drunk, particularly like what, you know, fighting each other or bonding with each other is they're all either one's almost as good as the other, right? There's they're like, they, they, and it's really, it's two different sides of the, of the, the male psyche, I think. But yeah, I was in, I was in Pamplona, Spain during the San Fermin festival, you know, when I was a young man and, uh, you know, the running of the bulls and I was up all night, I was going to run, run with the bulls the next morning and I was up all night drinking like most people are there um, in this little bar 
And I started talking to these two Spanish guys. And my dad grew up in Spain, so I, I spoke pretty decent Spanish at the time. And 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 um, I was talking to these two Spanish guys who were really, really drunk. And, and one of them had a, a plastic Viking helmet on his head, and uh, which was just part of the insanity of the whole scene. And, and so we were talking, and these very tough from Moroccan or Algerian French-speaking guys came in. And I, I lived in France when I was a kid, so I spoke French pretty well, too. And so these guys came in and um, walked right up to my new friends and grabbed the Viking helmet off the guy's head and said, in French, that's ours, you stole it. And the other guy, my new Spanish friends, one of them said, no, it's not, it's mine. And he grabbed for it. And I'm now translating between <laughs> the two. And um, so what started, you know, what started up, but you know, everyone should have put their hands on the helmet. I mean, I didn't because I didn't care. But the but the five guys were sort of, you know, had their hands on the helmet and were starting to push each other and stagger around. And it was looking to be a pretty good bar fight, and uh, and it started to rip. The helmet started to rip, and one of the Spanish guys said, "Stop, stop, stop! We're we're, we're, we're breaking it." So everyone's eyes translated, and everyone stopped. And um, so one of the Spanish guys turned to me and, and asked me to take his place at the helmet. And I kind of reluctantly did. And um, he went to the bar and bought a jug of red wine, cheap red wine, and unscrewed the cap and filled the helmet up with red wine. And, and the whole festival runs on red wine. I mean, you don't want to be, it's almost <laughs> sacred, right? I mean, you don't want to be the jerk that like spills the red wine, right? So he, he put his hands under the helmet and said, okay, now everyone let go. And so everyone did. And he gave the helmet to the sort of biggest, toughest of the Moroccan guys. And said, "You're a you're a guest in our country, so you drink first. Yeah. And uh, he drank, and he passed it to his left. And the helmet went around. You know, I drank, went around the circle, went around again, got filled up again. Eventually, they were just passing jugs of wine around. And you know, an hour later, I looked over, and all five guys are like draped on each other, drinking <laughs> and trying to sing in two different languages at once. And the Viking helmet that they were prepared to fight over was completely forgotten in a corner of the room." And that to me was, that's the sort of interesting thing about men is that the, the, the energy of male aggression is very, very close to the energy of male bonding. I mean, you just change a couple of things and your enemy is your brother and the two of you are unified against some other enemy. And, and it, you just, you have to barely change a few things to get that sort of alchemy to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So funny how something like a glass of wine can turn what could be a bar fight into, into singing together. Yeah. 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 So Sebastian, before I ask my last question, if people want to find you online, where should they look? Uh, well, I do have a Facebook page. I never post anything on it, but if you want to reach me with a message, the reason I have it is people can reach me. So if you, if you want to look me up and send me a message, I will answer you. If it's a, if it's an honest, respectful question, I will answer you for sure. Wow. Um, uh, I also have a website, SebastianYounger.com, and it has all my books and films and all that stuff. Um, but I don't—I never post anything. I mean, I don't tweet. I don't—I don't do anything on social media. Um, so you won't be getting my latest ruminations. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, but we could—we could find you on Facebook, and it's SebastianYounger.com. Uh, that's right. Okay, great. So, Sebastian, my my final question: If you were talking to a young military leader, and they want to build this sense of tribe in their own unit, what advice would you give to them? 
Well, I mean, the military does that already. Like, I, 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 I mean, just the, the, the going through, I mean, it depends on the kind of unit as well, but the harder the circumstances, the more tightly bonded the group's going to be. Um, and uh, particularly if they're not passive. I mean, I think if you got 10 people trapped in an elevator for a week, I'm not quite sure what happens there. But if you have a group that's um, proactive in dealing with their tough circumstances that creates an incredibly strong bond. So I don't, you know, I, I, I think the, um, um, probably one of the most important things for a leader is to not shelter himself or herself from hardship and consequences. Um, you know, as they say in the Marines, the, the officers eat last. Um, you, you, what will, what will erode the, the, the sense of group identity is having a leader that uses the group to protect himself or herself from dangerous or bad things. And so the leader really needs to sort of be, to lead, actually. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, I mean, there's a reason that they use that word. Um, either into something dangerous or into something unpleasant. Like, you, you don't want to, you don't want people to think that you are exempting yourself from the circumstances the group is, uh, is going through. And, you know, of course, officers have a different job, and they're not supposed to, you know, unsheathe their sword and go charging the enemy. I mean, I, you know, I get that, but 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 um, but it's important to communicate that you'd be right there with them if you could be. But you you have a, your job is to keep them alive uh, by acting correctly in combat, and that and that involves having situational awareness and communication and all that stuff. And so you may not be leading the charge up the hill, but 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 you're you are doing everything you can to keep themselves and yourself alive. Yourself alive. Awesome. Sebastian, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for watching. I had a ton of fun doing this, and Sebastian was so generous. I actually did this interview once before and completely botched the recording, but he was patient enough to come back and do it a second time with me. So if you enjoyed this interview, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, remember, great leaders lead by example.